Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. What time zone are you in? Good morning. This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Before we get started, though, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn about who you are, about your son Jesus, about the sacrifice that he made on the cross for each and every one of us, about your Holy Spirit, how you lead us, you guide us, how you speak to our lives. I ask that you would just meet each of us right where we're at. You know our thoughts, you know what we're going through, you know our desires, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us and guide us through this study, that we would hear the words that you want us to hear, that your words would be spoken here this morning, not mine. Lord, I just ask that you would watch over us, that you would protect us, that you would keep us safe. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, we are in Hebrews chapter 10, and how does this work? What do we do? We go chapter and verse through the Bible, right? So we've been going chapter and verse through the book of Hebrews, right? <clears throat> so if we read something today that happens to speak to what's going on in your life, how do you think that came about? Yeah. Um, it came about because... Because God put it there. That's right. So if you ever wonder, how does God speak to me? He can speak to you in many ways. He can speak to you through his word. He can speak to you through his time of prayer that we spend with him. He can speak to us when we're worshiping him in song. He can speak to us through something that someone says to us. Right? He speaks to us in many ways. And how do we know if it's God that's speaking to us and not um, the enemy? If it lines up with his word, right? If it lines up with his word, then we know it's from him. So that's why it's important that we spend time in his word regularly. I would say every day. So that we get to know more of his word. Not just what someone tells us it says, but what we get to read for ourselves. So, Hebrews chapter 10, starting here in verse 1. We're going to be in the New Living Translation. The old system under the law of Moses, was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing from those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. So it's saying under the old covenant, the sacrifice of the blood of the bulls and the goats that only covered up sins but didn't take the sins away, also didn't take away their guilty consciences or the guilt that they would have felt. But here we read that Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all times, right? For all of our sins, all the sins past, present, future, right? That he died on the cross for that. And that our feelings of guilt can also disappear. So we'll continue on. But what have we learned in our previous studies in Hebrews? That God takes away our sins, removes them from our record like it never happened. It also cleanses our consciences, and that when he promises something, it's a guarantee, right? Mm-hmm. So if this is one of his promises, I would tell you this is a guarantee. But it takes faith whether we choose to believe in this or not. Do I really believe that he can cleanse my conscience, that he can take away this guilt that I feel? If I truly believe that, that takes faith. But the enemy is going to come fiercely against that and tell you that that will never happen. You can't be rid of your guilt. You can't have a clear conscience. Look at all the bad things you've done. So at that moment, you have a choice to make. Do I believe God and his word, or do I believe the lies of the enemy? So we'll continue on. But I would like to point out again that we're just going chapter and verse through the Bible. 
So when we come to this, and if this speaks to you, well, I would say that that's God speaking to you. Anyways, continuing on. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. So year after year, they'd go and they'd sacrifice, right? <clears throat> We've learned about this. That they would Once a year, the high priest would make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people, and he would go into the most holy place in the temple, right? Into the presence of God. And that year after year when they do that, it would remind them of all the bad things that they had done. So it didn't actually take away their sins and didn't remove their guilt. That's why the covenant that we have now, the blood of Jesus, is a far better covenant than the original covenant, right? Than the first covenant. And the covenant is just how is God's relationship with his people. And the, the covenant that we have, the relationship that we have with God now is far better and it's only because of the blood of Jesus <clears throat> so continue on here chapter 10 verse 4 for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins that is why when Christ came into the world God said you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. First, Christ said, so the author of Hebrews is going to break this down. First, Christ said, you do not want animal sacrifices, or sin offerings, or burnt offerings, or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. So what does that mean? God doesn't really want these sacrifices. That's not what he's after. He's not after um, a legalistic approach to how we have a relationship with God. It's not, did I check all the right boxes? Did I do all the right things? God makes it very clear that he's not after that. Right? That's not what interests him. What interests him is a heart that's after his heart. And what interests him is he wants a relationship with each and every one of us. And that that relationship is far more important than anything else we could do. This also speaks to that this is not a works-based relationship. There's no work that I can do that makes me right with God. Right? The only work that happened that can make me right with God was Jesus' work on the cross when he willingly, of his own free will, went to the cross and paid that penalty for each of our sins. So we'll continue on here in verse 10. For God's will... Actually, we better hit verse 9. We skipped over that one. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Then he said, Look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So his sacrifice was good once, and it serves for all time, past, present, and future. Verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. So by that one offering, by his sacrifice on the cross, he forever made perfect those, and I would say those, or speaking of believers, who are being made holy. So when we become believers in Jesus, there's a, a Bible term, sanctification, that comes up, right? And what sanctification is, is being more like Jesus each and every day, right? Less of us and more of him. This process of being made holy. 
And the other term or definition for sanctification is being set apart. So we're being set apart each and every day, each and every year, each and every week. We're being more set apart, right? Set apart from this world to be more like Jesus. So continue on here, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that it is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So we understand that Jesus' sacrifice was good once and for all times. And then we've asked forgiveness for our sins. What does God promise to do? That he will never remember them again, that he removes them from our record. And that there's no more need to offer more sacrifices. So that's important. <clears throat> when we especially relate it back to the beginning of the chapter, that he can remove this guilt or clear our consciences. Sometimes do we get caught in our own trap of, in our own minds that, well, I need to do this and this and this to really be forgiven for sins, right? But God makes it very clear that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once for all time, and there's no more need for other sacrifices. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God, right? There's no sacrifice that we can offer, and it doesn't even please him for us to offer any further sacrifice. Because what we're really saying is that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't really enough. That Jesus' death on the cross wasn't really enough to pay the penalty for my sins. And that's not true. So we need to be careful in our own minds and believe, and again, the enemy's going to come fiercely against whatever God says, but believe that we could be forgiven for every sin we ever committed, that God never brings it up again, and that we can have a clear conscience of that. So before we move on further in, the, in Hebrews chapter 10, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31. So these last few verses we read in Hebrews chapter 10, kind of verse 15 through 18, comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. So let's go take a look at that. So Jeremiah chapter 31, starting here in verse 31. So this is in the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel has um, rebelled against God, has forgotten God, gone and worshipped other, other gods or false gods, other idols. <clears throat> and God has warned them all along the way, repent and, and I'll forgive. And they refuse to, and okay, repent and accept my punishment and things will go well for you. And they refuse to, and they refuse to. <clears throat> and then all the bad things that God warned them about happens to them. I would say to you that that's not God making it happen. God tells them this is going to happen. But if you go this direction or you turn this way, you can avoid all of that. But when we choose to ignore him, that, that's not God making that happen. That's our own choices that brought that into our lives. So anyways, this is where that, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15 through 18, it comes from this area of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 31 so this idea of a new covenant wasn't something that God kind of thought of afterwards. He had this all planned out before he created, before he laid down the foundations of the world. <clears throat> and not that he made all these decisions happen that people make. He knew, foreknew the decisions they would make and knew how he would respond. So it didn't catch God off guard when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. He knew that would happen, but he already knew how he would respond. And we've looked over that. And he had... The, the promise of his son, Jesus, coming into this earth is seen all the way back in Genesis. So here we'll see, hear about the new covenant, which didn't, none of these things caught him off guard. This is how he always knew he would handle the decisions we made. So Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not 
be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. So this is a different covenant, right? They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from least to greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. It is the Lord who provides the sunlight to the day. Hope I read that again. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day, and the moon and stars to light the night, and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's army, and this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. So even though the nation of Israel has done all these wicked things um, and has walked away from God numerous times, he makes it very clear that he will never walk away from them that the laws of nature would be changed easier than him walking away from his people. And I would say to you that that's the same for us today. That's the same for all people. All of God's people who choose to believe in his son have that same promise. That no matter what you've done or could do in the future, he will never abandon you. He will never leave you. He'll never walk away from you. He will always give you the desires of your heart. So if the desire of your heart is you don't want a relationship with God, then he will give that to you, right? That's not what's best for you. That's not what he wants for you. All he wants for you is a a life filled with him, a life that's filled with a relationship with him. But if your desire is that you don't want anything to do with him, he will give that to you. And at the end of your life here on this earth, he will give that to you for all of eternity. He'll give you the desire of your heart to be separate from him for all of eternity. But that's not his desire by any means. And he makes it very clear that he'll never leave or abandon you, even when you screw up. So, the new covenant is far better than the old covenant. We've learned that. We've studied that throughout our time here in Hebrews. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. So a lot of this stuff that is in Hebrews chapter 10, we've already read throughout Hebrews, right? So does it seem like God is saying the same thing over and over again? And the answer to that would be yes. Now, why do you think he's doing that? Is he just trying to bore us? No, because he's trying to get our attention so that we can understand that what he says is true. And I'd also say to you that the enemy never really gives up this battle in your thought lives right? Or in our thought lives. And so that God continues to remind us over and over again who he is and what his promises are. Because the enemy is going to constantly come against us. And most of the time that's in, the, in our own thoughts and in our own thought lives. So, continuing on here, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Do we understand that? Right? When he died on the cross, that curtain was ripped. And we've looked at this already in the book of Hebrews, and God's reminding us again that now we can enter into that most holy place. That Jesus' death on the cross opened up our access to God. 
And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So we can go right into the presence of God, and this isn't speaking of salvation, right? Being saved is something different than, different than going into this presence of God. I would say to you, and we've looked at this previously, that going into the presence of God is getting is receiving all that God has for us. So salvation, while it is amazing, eternal life, life forever in paradise, in heaven, is amazing. God has far more for us than that, right? God has a promise that he can lead us through these tough times, that he can give us a peace, a peace but not a peace of this world where we have an absence of conflict. That's what the world defines as peace. But God's peace is that we can go through the conflict with peace in our hearts. That God can comfort us. And the reason that he comforts us is so that we can comfort others in their time of need. Right? So these are the things that we get to inherit when we go into the presence of God. Salvation, yes, we are saved. But going into the presence of God is receiving all that God has for us. And what God has for us is a very rich, fulfilling, satisfying life. But not by the world's definition but by his definition, right? That we can go into his presence when we lack wisdom and ask God, can you please grant me wisdom? And what does the word tell us? He makes it very clear in the book of James that when we lack wisdom and we ask for it, he gives it to us in a liberal proportion, in a large portion. Like going to an Italian house and they're serving up dinner. It's in large portions, right? Is that not true? Does your grandma not have large portions for you? Oh, yes. Yes, your grandma is Italian. Her last name is Fonti. So anyways, <laughs> that's what he has for us. So that's what the going into the presence of the Lord is. It's receiving all that he has for us. And salvation, yes, is a huge part of that. But there is so much more. So why just end our relationship with God with, yes, I believe, I'm saved, I'm good. We looked at this last week that... There's rewards, right? And that it's not our works that get us rewards. It's the things that we do in faith. The things that God has called us to do, that we step out in faith. The things that we probably first think, there's no way I can do this. But we do it anyways, and we follow through. We pursue a relationship with God. We trust in Him that He's leading us and guiding us. And when we step out in faith, that's what we're rewarded for, right? That's going into the presence, into the inner holy place, the most holy place, into the presence of God. It's receiving all that he has to offer for us. And that access is open all the time. That access is open because of the work Jesus did on the cross. So that's very important. Any questions on that? No? Maybe at the end? Okay. So... We'll continue on here. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Well, we'll pick it up in verse 22 again because it's important. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So when we have a sincere heart and we're fully trusting him, we can receive all that he has for us. And how can we go into that presence of God? Is when we ask God to forgive us for our sins and he wipes the record clean. We are truly sinless and faultless, right? He's removed all of our sins from our record. And then we can go into his presence, right? We can receive what he has for us. But if we're not willing to ask for forgiveness for our sins, we can't really go into his presence and receive all that he has for us. We can't go into his presence with um, harboring sin in our life. And we won't get into it this study, but we will get into it next week and what that looks like. So, um, For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So here again, we read about our guilty consciences being sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. So who has the power to cleanse our consciences? God does. Is it just a one-time asking him? Possibly. He does work that way. Is it something I need to regularly go to him for? I would say possibly. He works that way also. And why would he not just do it instantly? Because when I have to go to him more and more and more, what am I doing? 
I'm building a relationship with him. I'm relying and trusting in him more. My faith is getting stronger, right? So is that a good thing? So while it seems hard that he doesn't answer us right away, oftentimes he's doing it to strengthen our faith in him, to strengthen our relationship with him, to strengthen that light and witness that we have to those around us. So verse 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. So everything that we read about God is a promise, and he, we can, be, he can be trusted to keep his promises, because his promises are really guarantees. So with that, we're going to look at a few other things. Because this sounds pretty simple, right? Just believe, go into his presence, ask him for what we need. He helps us. We ask him regularly when we're struggling and he helps us. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Like, I can be saved just by believing in Jesus, by changing my heart, living a life that pursues him. Doesn't that sound pretty simple? Like, too good to be true, too easy? Yes. So there's somebody else that had similar experience. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Is everybody there? Okay. Second Kings chapter 5, <laughs> starting here in verse 1. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, the Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go and see the prophet in Samaria. So I wish my master would go and see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God? Can I give life and take it away? Can I see that he's, I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. So the king of Aram sends his prized uh, commander of the army, Naaman, to the king of Israel and asks him to heal him of leprosy. And what is the king of Israel's first response? He panics. He freaks out. And that this man is just trying to pick a fight with me. He doesn't go to God first, right? Can God save him from this? Can God help him? Yes. So, but God doesn't leave it there. So we'll continue on 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent a message to him. And yes, it's Elisha, not Elijah. There's two men during this time frame with similar names, and this is Elisha. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman 
went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elijah's house. Of Elisha's house, sorry. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of leprosy. Well, that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Go and wash yourself seven times. So there's no, at this time, there is no cure for leprosy. You know, you're not getting rid of it. This was a big deal in this day and age, right? If you were in the the nation of Israel, you would be cast out. Cast out because you didn't want to spread. And so this was possibly a death sentence, maybe not, but it was pretty serious. So here you've been told, Naaman's been told to go wash seven times in the river, in the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, if you've ever seen it, is a muddy, dirty, kind of gross river. (laughs) You would think I'd probably get more dirty by going to Washington than clean. But anyways, he's been told to go wash seven times and you'll be healed. And that sounds pretty simple, right? So what do you think his response is? He just goes and does it? No, he doesn't. So... Continuing on here, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would have certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and to call on the name of the Lord, his God, to heal me. So he had a, another idea in his head. And God did not answer his prayers or his thoughts or his idea the way he thought he should. Has that ever happened in your life where you think God should move in a certain way or do a certain thing and he doesn't and you become frustrated? Why God, why wouldn't you do this or why wouldn't you do that, right? So if the prophet Elijah, Elijah, Elisha, okay, it's Elisha, it's E-L-I-S-H-A, Elisha, Well, I like to say Elisha, because then you make a distinction between the two men. So, anyways. Now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so, anyways, if, if Elisha had come out and met him and waved his hand over him and asked God to heal him, then Naaman would have accepted that if God would have fit in Naaman's mold or fit into, into, into the design that Naaman had for God. But God doesn't fit into our designs, right? We're to follow him, not to try and parade him around like a puppet. So continuing on here in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 12. Aren't the rivers of Damascus and Abna and the Fafar better than any of the rivers in Israel, why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So again, why doesn't God work in this way in my life? Why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God handle this? Why doesn't God take care of this? But he's not focused on what he should be focused on. He should be obedient to what God's asked him to do. God's given him a promise. If you go wash seven times, you will be healed. And what are God's promises? They're guarantees. So Naaman turned and went away in rage. So at first he stalked away, he became angry and stalked away, and then he stewed on it, right? In his own mind, in his own thought life. That he stewed on it and that anger turned into rage. Does that ever happen in your life? Where a situation happens and you you start thinking about it and stewing on it and it turns into something a lot bigger than what it is? Mm -hmm. Same thing happened for Nate. And why did this happen? Because... Naaman refused to humble himself and do what God asked him to do, right? God asks us to do really simple things. God asks us to have a relationship with him, to spend time in prayer with him, to spend time in his word, to spend time worshiping him. Mostly in song, I would say, but there's other ways. And that's really simple things to do. But when we choose not to do that because, well, God should do this, or I want to go do this, or whatever it is, then we're making it about us and not about God. And that's what Naaman's doing. He's making it about him and not about God. And in his own thought life, the enemy is fueling this fire. And his anger turns into rage very quickly. So we'll continue on here. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13. 
But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you certain, so you certainly, let me try that again. Verse 13. But if the officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times, as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. So when he went and humbled himself and did what God asked him to do, which was a simple task, what happened? God kept his promise. God did exactly what he said he would do. He would heal him. So his men around him could see, and oftentimes the people that we have in our life can see what we should do, but we lose track of it because we lose sight of it in our own minds. We allow the enemy in our thought lives to lead us down the path that we, don't, we shouldn't go down, which is usually the opposite path of God, which usually leads us away from God. And that those around us can see what we're to do. Hey, this is what God's led you to do. And this sounds pretty simple, but you're not doing it. And we, when we choose to heed their advice, and when their advice lines up with God's word, we absolutely should. So, when he does that, he is healed. So then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me of this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the God of Rimen to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. So we see that Naaman has been asked to do something simple, gets mad in his own thought life. That anger turns into rage because the enemy is working him in a way that the enemy knows. The enemy has a plan for your life also, and that plan is to lead you away from God every opportunity they have. The enemy can't take away your salvation. We've been over this. But the enemy can make you very ineffective in the work you're doing for God and very ineffective in having that fulfilling, satisfying life that God promises, right? Not a perfect life, not a life free of conflict, but a life that you can go through the conflict with his peace, with his comfort, with his leading and his guiding. So, with that, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So in our study today and in our time here in Hebrews, we've heard quite a few of the promises of God, right? And it sounds simple just to believe in him, to believe in what he says, but oftentimes the enemy wants to come and snatch that away and take that, that peace, that joy that you have away from you. And so God gives us some instructions on how to handle that. And that's found in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10. So a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, not in my own power, not in my own strength. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Right? So we don't put on some of God's armor. Here we're told to put on all of God's armor. 
so that we can stand firm, not so that we can attack, we just stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. So we're not fighting against people, right? The battle's not against people. And often in our thought lives, the enemy will take us there and take us and, and cause division between other people in this world. Either Christians or non-Christians, no matter who it is. Many times the enemy will divide us there. But we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in, his, in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So there's mighty powers in this dark world. And why is this world dark? Because the God of this world, little g, is Satan. We've been over that in the Bible. The Bible makes that very clear. So this dark world that we live in is ruled by Satan. He's the God of this world. Jesus is coming to redeem this world, though, right? So he came the first time to save. The second time he comes to judge, and he will redeem this world. So continuing on, uh, here in verse 13. Therefore, so this is our, what we're to do. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. Oh, yes. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. So we've been told that twice. So you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. So again, we're not told to attack. We're told to stand firm, right? Verse 14, stand your ground. Put on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. So the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness, many times these attacks from the enemy, and the enemy is a threefold enemy. We have the devil and his demons. We have our own sinful flesh, our own sinful desires, and we have this world system. That's the threefold enemy that the Bible speaks of. So we have this threefold enemy, and oftentimes the enemy comes against us in our own thought lives, but sometimes the enemy comes against us in what other people say, right? Do other people accuse us or lie about us or slander us? Yes. When you read through the Psalms, you read a lot of that, a lot of God, people are, are lying about me, slandering me. Please help me. Please help me. So that happens regularly. So why is it important to put on the belt of truth and this body armor of God's righteousness? And what is righteousness? Right standing, living a right life with God. Why is that important? Why is that the first thing? Because when these people come with their attacks and their false accusations, when you've been living a truthful, right standing relationship with God, and not a perfect one, None one of us are perfect. We all struggle with sins. And we can all be forgiven for those sins. And we will continue to sin throughout our time here on this earth. But when we're living a, a life that's true, that is in right relationship with God, that when these attacks come, they won't last long. And they won't find any merit in them. But if we're living our lives and we still are trying to hide some sin, some gross, you know, obvious sins in our life, you know, I can't be living my life and embezzling from my company and thinking that everything's going to go well, right? That's not living the truth or the right standing of God. I can't have these, these large, gross sins in my life. I'm always going to have the minor sins in my life, but I'm always working through those. So when I... Don't have these major gross sins when people throw these accusations. They don't last long. They don't stand, is what that really is speaking to me about. So verse 15, For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. So the put on the peace that comes from the good news, right? The gospel of Jesus, that brings us peace, right? What can any one person do to us? We have salvation. The God of this world holds us in his hands. He protects us. He keeps us safe. Not to live a perfect life or a trouble-free life, but a life that can be set free from worry, that can be set free from um, turmoil in our minds, 
to go through the, the chaos with peace. That's what we can be set free from. And that's what the gospel of truth does. And we're to take it out. We're to walk it in our everyday lives. Put on shoes. Walk out that life. Be that light and witness to others. Make sure we're telling others about Jesus, right? Verse 16. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows from the devil. So oftentimes those fiery arrows come from what people say. That can happen. And we can hold up the shield of faith. No, that isn't true. I didn't do that. Not what you have accused me of. Not what other people have accused me of. And that God will take care of it, right? God will protect our reputations. I don't have to. I don't have to worry about my reputation. God will take care of that when I'm living that right life with him. Not a perfect life, but that right life with him. But also, these fiery arrows come in the way of our thought lives. So the enemy wants to tell us, no, you can't really be forgiven of that. Your conscience will never be cleared of that. Whatever that is, we've read over and over again in Hebrews that that's not true. God's told us over and over and over again. So this shield of faith to stop these fiery arrows is just that. No, my shield of faith, faith is believing in what I can't see. I believe, God, that you can clear my conscience. I believe, God, that you can forgive my sins. So when the enemy comes against you in your thought life, instead of being like Naaman and going from anger to rage, allowing that to stir in my thoughts and stir in my thoughts, I'm going to turn to God and I'm going to say, God, I trust in you. I find this in your word and I find this in your word. And this is what is true, not what the enemy's telling me. Does that make sense? That's an important one to get. And then verse 17. Put on salvation as your helmet. We've been over this. There, once you're saved, there is no, nothing you can do to not be saved. So salvation of your helmet, to me, speaks of no headshots, no death blows, that you can't lose your salvation. Once you've truly been saved, you live a life where you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that he is God. And that believing in your heart comes with a changed life. I've repented. I once lived a life opposite of you, God. I've repented, done an about face, and now I'm living a life for you. Not a perfect life, but a life a lot different from what I lived before. That's what salvation is. And no one can take that away from you. And take the sword of the Spirit. So the only weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But this is very important. That sword of the Spirit, the only weapon we have is not to be used against flesh and blood, right? We're not to use that against other people and beat them over the head where God's word says this and God's word says this and this is where you fall short and where you fall short. That is not what we're told to do. The battle is against the devil and against the enemy, right? And that's where the sword of the spirit comes in. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness three times by the devil, and I would say to you throughout his life, he was tempted with every temptation we've ever faced, but that was an intense temptation after a long time of fasting. How did he refute every one of those temptations? He went back to God's word. So he gives, he gives us a perfect example. When we're tempted, what do we do? We go back to God's word. God, what does your word say about this? I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with whatever that is. What does your word say about that? That's my sword. That's no Satan, not today. I'm not going to fall into your trap because God's word says this. This is who I am. Does that make sense? Okay. So then verse 18. How do we do all of this? Where's all this accumulated to? I would say to you it's in verse 18. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So this battle was mostly in our thought lives, in our own head. And our relationship with God is truly based on prayer. It's not the works I've done. We've been over that. He's not after sacrifices. That doesn't please him. He's after this relationship. So right here, this whole battle that we face, this earthly battle, this human condition battle that we face here on this earth, it's all answered by picking up all, not just a few pieces of his armor, all of his armor, and in prayer. Pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. That means I'm continually talking to God. When I'm tempted, when I have a thought of 
of whatever it is in my life, being upset with another person, whatever that is, what do I do right away? God, forgive me for that thought. I confess it, right? I thought it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. He forgives me, removes it from my record. God, help me with this. Help me not to struggle with this anymore. Help me to love this person. Help me to love my enemies, right? And so that's where the battle is won and lost, is in prayer. But we have to put on all of God's army. He tells us that many times. And he doesn't tell us to go out and tack and look for the fight. He just tells us to stand firm. He tells us that many times, too. That's very important. So, with that, there's a few places in Isaiah that I want to look up that relates to what we read here. And then we got a few more verses to read and we'll wrap up. So we're going to go to Isaiah. We're going to bounce around fairly quickly, but we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 11, verse So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, I would say to you that this is speaking of Jesus. This is a, a, a prophecy of Jesus to come right here on this earth. So here in verse 5, it says that he will wear righteousness as his belt and truth like an undergarment. So here we're told to do all these things, but Jesus is our example. He's done it all first, and that's. I just find it very interesting that Isaiah tells, gives us some of the same attributes as what we read in Ephesians there. Because we're to live the life that Jesus lived. We're to model that life. There's many models or role models or celebrities that you can model your life after here on earth. But the only one we're to model our lives after is Jesus. So let's go to Isaiah 59:17. Like I said, we're going to bounce around to quite a few of these. And they're just one verse, so I can read them to you. Or if you can keep up. Yeah, Isaiah 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. So he's done that. He put the the body armor on again. We read the salvation. The helmet of salvation is on his head. So Jesus has already done all these things. He's done it all, and he's God. He doesn't need to do all these things. He's doing it to set the example for us. But we do read that he clothed himself with vengeance and wrapped himself with divine passion. And I would say to you that that vengeance belongs to the Lord each and every time. People will talk about, oh, it's a righteous anger. I have never found a time in my life where it was okay for me to be angry. Because that anger gives a foothold to the devil is what the Bible tells me. And many people, I I think, misuse that. Oh, it's a righteous anger. And oftentimes they go back to when he overturned the, the money exchangers' tables in the temple. Well, I'll make one distinction to you. He's God. We are not. Right? So, if I'm angry at people or angry at the things that they've done, how do I ever love them? Right? Because anger and love are hard to exist in the same moment. And I'm to lead people to Jesus. I'm to be that light and a witness. And the only other thing I would say to that quickly is that Paul, both Peter and Paul write in the New Testament that they were to submit to the government authority. Well, the government authority at that time was a pretty awful authority. Nero was lighting Christians on fire in his garden, saying, you want to be the light of the world? How about you light my garden up? So... Paul and Peter are telling Christians to submit to that man, that would have been pretty tough. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but historical texts do say that Paul, when he was being led away to be beheaded, that the Roman soldiers with him all came to know the Lord. And I would say to you that if he was angry for the injustice that was about to take place and how they had treated him, how he was falsely imprisoned and all the wrong things that had gone on in his life and that he had seen, If he had used that anger or fed into that anger, then he probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to be a light and a witness to them. But historical texts say that those Roman officers that beheaded Paul 
all became saved. And I would tell you, Paul doesn't do that by being angry. Paul does that by loving them. So, but that's a, another study for another time. Uh, the next place that we are going to go is Isaiah 52, verse 7. So that is Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messengers who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns, right? So what's the good news? That the God of Israel reigns. And who's the God of Israel? It's the same God we serve. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That he reigns and the good news is peace and salvation. That we believe in his son Jesus that he died on the cross, we can have salvation and we can have peace, but not an absence of conflict, but a peace to go through the conflict. And then the last place we'll go in Isaiah is Isaiah 49, verse 2. You know that one? You got that one? He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. So this is, this is God's servant Jesus speaking of God, the Father. Jesus makes it clear that his authority came from the Father. So that he made my words, which is very interesting. Jesus, the word in John chapter 1. You know, Jesus is the word. The word was God, was with God. So he made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. So Jesus didn't come to judge this first time, but he will come back to judge the second time. So we should take it, and at the end of our lives, we're judged. And we went over that in our previous study. So with that, let's go to 1 John chapter 5. And then we got a couple verses in Hebrews to finish up, and we will be done. So 1 John chapter 5. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commands. Loving God means keeping his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. So his commands are not burdensome. When we say that we love God, that's evident in our lives. With Are we keeping his commands? Are we following what he says? Are we listening to him, letting him lead and guide our lives? For every child of God defeats this evil world. Every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win the battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? So who can win the battle? Only those that believe Jesus. And why can only those that believe Jesus win the battle? Because Jesus already won the battle. The battle is over. He's overcome the world. Right? We're just waiting for him to come back again and clean it up. But in that meantime, he gives us many, many promises. Like the ones that we read in Hebrews. So... His burdens, his commandments are not burdensome. But when we say we love God, God defines, hey, if you love me, it's not a feeling you have. Right? We've been over this. The love that God speaks of, this agape love, is not a feeling. It is a choice. Right? It's denying myself, picking up my cross, and following Jesus. The agape love speaks of a self-sacrificing love. Right? So, it's not some feeling I have. It's do I follow him? Am I willing to set aside my own desires and put his desires, his commandments first in my life? And his commandments are not burdensome. Oftentimes we get this idea that it's this overwhelming, big, burdensome thing. Jesus summed it all up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second one is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You follow those two commandments, then you sum them all up. All the commandments, all the demands of the prophets are summed up in those two. So, that's not burdensome. And that goes back to the, the being angry part. Everything's summed up in love. And love and anger don't exist in the same, in the same 
place. So we'll finish up these last two verses here in Hebrews chapter 10. So Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. So let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So let us think of ways to motivate one another. So we've gone through this battle we have in our minds, but God's also told us here, or to go out and motivate one another, to motivate other believers to, um, to do acts of love and good works. We're to encourage others to do good. That's a big part of our lives. We live this right life with God, but we're not to just keep it to ourselves. We're to strengthen and encourage others. Strengthen and encourage others to have that relationship with God. Tell others about the relationship with God that, that you have or the things that God has done in your life. We're to do all of that. And we're not to neglect our meeting together. So people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You're absolutely true. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. But if you want to be that obedient Christian that loves God, if you want to have that claim, I love God, you got to go to church. Because he makes it very clear here, we're not to neglect our meeting together. And why is that? Because alone, isolated, when we're talking about this spiritual battle, you are easily picked off by the enemy by yourself. You are a lot less likely to be torn apart by the enemy when you're with other believers. How does it work when I get depressed or I get um, anxious or I get worked up? Oftentimes I want to go and be isolated and I'm fitting right into the enemy's plan, right? That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants you to be isolated. Why? Because then you have, you have a lot less opportunity to get the help that you need, right? And that help often comes from other believers speaking encouragements into our lives. So we're to encourage other believers, but we're also to be around other believers so that they can encourage us in our time of needs. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So. so we're to encourage one another. That's a big commandment. And that's kind of where we end today. Any questions? None? What about you? Does that all make sense? No, just I'll just have a comment. Just um, thoughts on my notes. Uh, when you were in Ephesians six, uh, I have a lot of notes. Take if you're going through things, sometimes taking the eyes off of yourself um, takes away some of your. Uh, anxiousness and things like that and then start thinking of others but uh, the other comment was back in John, 1 John 5 everyone who loves his father loves his children too so it's one of the commandments if I love the Lord then I have to love his children too so it's just a comment that's all I got and his children, other his believers. Children are the other believers, meaning just loving everybody because they're children of God. That's it. That's yeah. all I got. Our neighbor is everyone, but then he specifically calls us out to love other believers. Yes. And I would probably say to you that loving other believers is harder because when they sin against us, you know that they know, well, they know better. And so that makes it harder. We're reminded to love them. And yes, getting, getting our eyes off of ourselves is, is a very important thing. And we did another study, a more extensive study on, Hebrew, or on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18. Um, and it's on the website. It's the full armor of God, putting on the full armor of God. And we went into it more extensively there. This was kind of a quick reminder just because of where we were at. We've been told many times throughout, especially in these last few chapters in, the, in Hebrews, that he can cleanse our consciences. Well, why does he tell us over and over and over again? Probably because we need to hear it over and over and over again because the enemy is telling us the opposite over and over and over again. And
and that God loves us so much that he wants us to have that full, satisfied life. Mm-hmm. Different from salvation, we're saved, but that presence of God is, is receiving all that he has promised us. And his word is full of many, many promises to us in our lives. And our faith is, do we believe that? Behold my shield of faith. I believe this. So, great comment. Okay. Anything else? Should we pray? Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways you speak into our lives. I just ask that you would meet each of us right where we're at this week. That you would lead us. You would guide us. You would just speak loudly to our lives. I know that your word says that you speak with a, a still, quiet voice. And I just ask that you would turn the volume up just a little bit for us this week. to Help us to hear the words that you have for us. Help us to not stifle your Holy Spirit, to not stifle your leading and guiding, to not argue with you like, like Naaman did. That you would just give us a spirit of peace and of truth um, that can only come from you. I ask that you would grant each of us wisdom, um, that you would grant us patience, that you would grant us the endurance to see it through. You would just lead us and guide us in ways that only you can. You would give us encouragement when we need it, that you would... That you would chasten us when we do need it as well. I ask that you would just do a work in our lives that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.